So if you were with us last week, you know that we are taking some time as the year begins to reflect on our mission as a church. Who are we? Why are we here? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? And if you weren't part of that, if you weren't part of our service last week, maybe if you were homesick, I know half of our church has the plague right now, um, or if you were out of town for the holidays, or if you were in nursery, please go back and listen to that. We don't um, usually like promote you know, our own sermons like that, but I, it's not because I was preaching. I just really want you to understand what it is that we're about as a church here. So if you're part of our group and you missed last week, uh, get online and try to listen to that sermon because we laid out in detail and at length uh, what we mean when we say that we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That is our mission as a church, and we reflected on that and unpacked that. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to make disciples of Jesus? That is why we're here. And that's what we were all about. And we need to have a clear understanding of our mission if we're going to accomplish it. Otherwise, distractions and mission drift creeps in, and we find ourselves dropping the ball. So we laid that out last week. This week, what we're going to do is begin four weeks of examining our values as a church. If we're going to be faithful at glorifying God by being and making disciples of Jesus, it's going to mean that there's going to be several values that become very important to our ministry as a church. And today we're going to address the first of those, which is the centrality of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel. That's our theme. We'll be taking that from 2 Corinthians 5, although we can find it all across the pages of Scripture. But I want to talk to you today about the importance of the gospel, why the gospel must be central in the ministry and the mission of the church. Several years ago, I did a study through the New Testament on the word gospel, the word that means good news, and I've shared this with some of you before, but it's worth sharing again. This word gospel is found 97 times in the New Testament, 97 times, nearly 100 times, and I surveyed all the different verbs that are associated with the word gospel, and I've sort of synthesized this together into paragraph form. According to scripture, the gospel is to be preached, it is to be proclaimed, it is to be presented, declared, delivered. It is to be shared, believed, obeyed, seen, confessed, received. The gospel is to be defended and confirmed and advanced. It is to be sacrificed for. It is to be stewarded. It is to be labored for. The gospel is to be hoped in and preserved. It is not to be turned from. It is not to be distorted. It is not to be forgotten. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to have confidence in the gospel. We are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and, if necessary, suffer for the sake of the gospel. Even a casual reading of the New Testament suggests that the gospel is important. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is of first importance. You're not there, but I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
This text from 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic definition of the gospel. It's the historical reality of Christ's death and his resurrection for sinners. It is the truth by which we are saved, the truth in which we must stand, and the truth that we must proclaim. Our mission as a church is to glorify God by being and making disciples. And the success of our mission requires faithfulness to the gospel. If we want to glorify God by being and making disciples, this truth, the message of the gospel, must have prominence and priority in the church. And in God's wisdom, we've not been left without a model. The clearest example, I think, of this faithful focus on the message of the gospel is the ministry of the Apostle Paul. A continuing emphasis on Christ's death and resurrection was the defining mark of Paul's ministry. And we want it to be the mark of our ministry as well. So that brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to share with you four ways in which the gospel must be central to the mission and ministry of the church. And as we dive into our text this morning, let's pause and ask for God's help in this endeavor. Heavenly Fathers, we approach your word. We do so with confidence, knowing that it's true, knowing that it is sufficient, knowing that in it we find your will clearly revealed. We come to your word also with expectancy. We believe that you speak to your people through your word, that you strengthen faith and you form us as we bring ourselves under the teaching of scripture. So Lord, accomplish your will in your people for your glory through the preaching of your word this morning. We pray this Jesus in your name, asking for the help of your spirit. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Really, the section we'll be looking at is verses 11 through 21, but I want to focus specifically on verses 14 through 21. And what we find in verse 14 and 15 is the first way in which the gospel must be central in the ministry, and that's that the gospel provides the motive for our ministry. It provides the motive. Look in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In this book of 2 Corinthians, and in this section of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is defending and explaining his ministry. Now, the ministry of Paul and his companions was one that had been marked by great dedication, costly sacrifice, and remarkable perseverance. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul writes, We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. A little bit of sarcasm there. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's what it meant for Paul to engage in the ministry God had given him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you just flip back a page, in verse 8, Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 24, Paul continues, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, as you read through these three different descriptions of Paul's ministry and what it cost him, you might sit back and go, why, Paul? Why? What would compel someone to live a life like this? To live a radically selfless life for the glory of God and the good of others, even at great personal expense, even if there has to be suffering? Well, Paul tells us in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. The constraining and the compelling power that has radically decentered itself from the throne of Paul's heart was the love of Christ, the love that had been demonstrated most powerfully and personally at the cross. The gospel has provided for Paul the motive for his ministry. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. And I love how Paul explains to us that this is more for him than simply an emotional reaction to what God has done. It's not just Paul going, aw, you shouldn't have. I owe you one. It's not just an emotional reaction. Paul has here a reasoned, logical response to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Paul reasons his way through the gospel message and understands the purpose and intent of Christ's sacrifice. Look in verse 15. Paul says, he died for all. And then you have a purpose statement. You can circle that little word that in your Bible because it's the logical link between these two phrases. He died for all. Why? For this purpose, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul reasons his way through the gospel to understand that Jesus died for a reason, so that those who believe would live for him, which is the exact opposite of living for self. And Paul simply says, if I live for myself and not for Christ, I am in direct contradiction, in direct competition to the very purpose for which Christ died. That can't happen. He understands the intention of Christ's death. You see, Christ's death and resurrection doesn't just change our eternal destination, rescuing us from hell, granting us entrance into glory, although it does do that, but the gospel also changes our entire orientation and purpose in life. 
Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. The old man, my old ego, my old self-sovereignty, my old values and goals have all been nailed to the cross. We have died with Christ. Paul says that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have concluded this, he says in verse 14, that one has died for all. That's Christ's representative death on the cross. Therefore, all have died. Those who have union with Christ through faith, his death is their death. It's the death of the old man, the death of the old life. We now have a new master to please. We have new priorities, new goals in life. The gospel provides the motive for our ministry. We live for him because he loved us. This is the same logic we find in Romans chapter 12, where after explaining the gospel, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercy shown in the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, the gospel changed everything for Paul, not just his destination, but the purpose for which he lived. The love of Christ, Paul says, controls us. That's why I've been shipwrecked. That's why I've been beaten. That's why I'm spilling my guts for you, beloved. It's because of the love of Christ. It's changed his motives. Let me ask you, have you considered, like Paul, the implications of Christ's loving sacrifice for you? Does the truth of the gospel shape your life? Does it motivate you in your obedience to Christ? Does the love of Christ fuel your worship? Does the vision of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in your place instill within your heart a resolve to live for Christ? If we're going to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus, we must be a people who never get over what Jesus did for us. A people who are arrested by his incomparable love. A people who are captured and compelled by his grace. A people who are fueled by the shocking wonder that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. That's got to be at the heart. That's got to be the thing that propels us, that motivates us. The love of Christ is to be the controlling factor in the heart of the Christian. The gospel provides the motive for ministry. If we're going to be faithful to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus, then the truth of the gospel needs to shape our motives. But there's a second way in which the gospel must be central to the ministry. In verses 16 and 17, we find that the gospel not only shapes our motives, but it also shapes our mindset, shapes the mindset for ministry. Look in verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the consequences of embracing the gospel, believing in Christ, is that it will change how you see the world. It will give you a new lens, a new mindset. No longer will you see and evaluate things and people according to outward appearances according to worldly standards, according to material values. 
you'll see through a different lens. Once the Apostle Paul had measured people that way, including himself. He'd even evaluated himself according to worldly standards, outward appearances, moral performance, religious credentials. Those were all the things he put stock in. And because of that, he had evaluated Jesus, formerly, to be an imposter, to be a false messiah whose followers were heretics guilty of death. That's why Paul was trying to kill Christians before Jesus literally knocked him off of his horse onto his face and changed his heart. But when God did that, when Christ changed Paul, when Paul received the good news of the gospel, it completely changed his entire outlook. And Paul became a new creation. So I says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so it is with all who are born again. If you know Jesus Christ, it means that you come to see Christ through a new set of eyes. The gospel changes the way also that we see the world. It changes our values. It changes the categories that matter to us. We see this in Paul's teaching to the church. No longer do the categories of Jew and Greek or slave and free or male and female, no longer are those the most meaningful categories. Paul now sees people as being united to Christ, as being new creation, as being sons and daughters of God. And he sees those outside the church as simply being those who need to be reconciled to God. That's why in Colossians, Paul uses the idea of insiders and outsiders. Those are the categories that matter to him. Do you know Christ or not? He now evaluates all of life through a new lens after having received the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves, does the gospel shape the way that we see the world? Because it should. It should. The gospel isn't just a new set of doctrinal beliefs. It's a whole worldview. It colors everything. The gospel tells us that sin is the main problem in the world. And the gospel tells us that Christ is the only solution to this problem that the world has. The gospel tells us that heart change is the goal for seeing people conform to the image of Christ. It's not just about behavior modification. It's not just that we can educate people enough or change some laws. The ultimate problem, the thing that needs to change is the human heart. When you adopt the gospel as your primary lens, those are the categories you start thinking in. And if we're going to be faithful to our mission of glorifying God by being and making disciples, this gospel needs to be the primary lens through which we see the world. So we have to ask, What lens are you looking through? And who constructed that lens? What categories matter to you? What are the needs in the world that weigh heaviest on your heart? What are the spiritual victories that bring you most joy? As a church, we need a gospel-centered mindset that has Christ and his redemptive work at the center A mindset shaped by our personal experience of the gospel. A mindset shaped by our understanding of what scripture teaches the gospel to be. A mindset that's shaped by our ongoing meditation on the good news of the gospel. The gospel provides the motive for our ministry, but it also shapes the mindset that we are to have as a church. There's a third way in which the gospel needs to be central. We find this in verses 18 through 20, and that's that the gospel drives the mission of the ministry. It drives our mission. So it provides the motive, shapes our mindset, and drives the mission. Verse 18. All of this, referring to 
God's work of grace, the new creation that Paul has become, the new way of seeing the world. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In these three verses, here in 18 through 20, Paul uses the word reconcile, or a form of it, five different times to describe what God has done in him, but also what God desires to do through him. So we ask, what is reconciliation? I know we have some younger kids in the room this morning. What does that big word mean? Reconciliation is when enemies make peace. Reconciliation is the exchange of hostility for harmony. It's the reestablishment and the healing of a broken relationship. We're familiar with this term when we think of marriage reconciliation. People who are separated, who are spouses, who come back together. We're aware of this idea when people talk about racial reconciliation, when parties that were formerly hostile are are reconciled together. But when Paul uses the word reconciliation in this passage, he's not talking about horizontal reconciliation, not horizontal relationships. He's talking about a vertical relationship, our relationship with God. You see, every person in the world has a relationship with God. Think about that for a minute. Everybody is related to God. But the problem is many people have the wrong kind of relationship. Rather than being related to him as a child, to a father, they are related to him as enemies. Being enemies is a kind of relationship. It's just not a healthy one. So the question is, what is our standing before God? The reason that there is a need for reconciliation is because man's relationship with God has been completely ruined by sin. Our rebellion against God has justly earned the punishment of wrath. Wrath. That is, that is righteous anger and the discharge of justice. That's what wrath means. Because of our sin, we are deserving of wrath, and we are the objects of God's wrath. This is because of sin. Verse 19 says that in order to reconcile us, God had to deal with our trespasses. That's the violation of God's will, his law. Verse 21 states that God had to deal with our sin by placing it upon Jesus. What this shows us is that you know who's at fault for this broken relationship? It's not God's fault that there needs to be reconciliation. It's ours. We're the guilty party. We're the ones who have wrecked this relationship with God. Sin has destroyed our fellowship with him. The Bible makes it clear that sinners are hostile to God. That's a strong word. You say hostility is strong. Do you really mean that? Well, listen to Romans 8, 7 through 8. It says that the mind that is set on the flesh... And that's the natural sinful state of man. That's the default mode we're all born in. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hostility. Enmity. That's the natural state of man. 
Colossians 1, 21 and 22 tells us that we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The reason there needs to be reconciliation is because that's what we are like. That's what human nature is. It is hostile against God. But the Bible also makes it clear that God, as a holy judge, is hostile towards the sinner. His wrath against sin is a righteous response to the rebellion of man. So what that means is that our hostility against God is wicked, but his hostility against sinners is holy, and it is righteous. Listen to Psalm 5, verse 5. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. These are difficult words. Make some of us uncomfortable, perhaps. This is what is written in Scripture. Psalm, 70, or Psalm 7, verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Why does God feel indignation? Because he's a righteous judge and he's observing unrighteous people who are violently opposing his holy law. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19 says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. That's the strongest possible language. Abomination. Here's the things that God hates that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. That's pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Those are things that happen every day, all day, all around the world. And God hates those things. So reconciliation is mankind's deepest need. Because we are hostile to God by nature. And in his righteousness, as a holy judge, he must be opposed to sin. Do you see what's at stake Man and God, separated, at war, enmity because of sin. Paul knows that reconciliation is mankind's deepest need. We need to be reconciled to God more than we need improved health care, more than you need financial stability, more than we need better schools, even more than we need a peaceful society or political reform or anything else in the world. Jesus said it this way, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but loses his soul. We need reconciliation with God. And here's the beautiful thing. God wants reconciliation. And he has made reconciliation possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, all this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Because of the cross, The hostility between us and God is completely removed and the relationship can be restored. I mentioned Colossians 1 earlier. I'll read the text at length. Verses 21 and 22. Paul says to that church, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
Here's the good news of the gospel, the grace of God, the love of Christ, that God is the initiator. He's the one who does the reconciling. We don't make things up to God. We're not the ones who approach him and patch up our broken relationship. He is the one who has both the power and the desire to restore sinners to himself, and he does it through sending his son, Jesus Christ. He saves us through the blood of his son. He reconciles us to himself. And then he chooses to use us, to deploy us as those whom he has rescued, to be ambassadors, to continue that mission of reconciliation. Verse 18, that through Christ he reconciled us to himself, and then notice this, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To minister is to serve. And what are we serving? We are serving God's mission. God has a plan to rescue and restore and reconcile sinners to himself. And he wants to use us as the means by which he will accomplish those gracious and loving plans. Paul says he reconciled us and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he says what he means by reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The gospel drives the mission of the church. Paul understands that we are ambassadors for Christ. And that God wants to proclaim this good news to the world through you and me. An ambassador is a political term. It speaks of someone who represents his nation in a foreign land. And it was in Paul's day and in ours a position of great honor and a great privilege. Our ministry is one of being ambassadors for Christ who proclaim the gospel. We get to tell people that they can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. That if they will believe in the good news, God will forgive their sins and their relationship with him can be restored. It's the gospel, it's the good news about this reconciliation that drives the mission of the church. We are tasked with representing Christ and proclaiming this message, an offer of peace. We extend the olive branch to the world and urge them, like Paul, to be reconciled to God. But I love in this text that Paul doesn't just talk about the gospel. He actually preaches the gospel. You see this in verse 20. So he's talking about it, and then he just says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So even while Paul describes his job, he's doing his job. He's preaching the gospel to these people. He urges them, be reconciled to God. This comes through faith in the work of Christ. After preaching this gospel, Paul actually explains the content of the gospel. And this brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. The gospel is the message of our ministry. It's the message at the heart of our ministry. And Paul unpacks the message of the gospel itself, telling us what it actually means in verse 21. This is one of the most potent and and important verses, I believe, in all the scripture. As it explains to us exactly what happened at the cross. Verse 21. For our sake, he, referring to God, the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin. Speaking about Jesus, God the Son. 
so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 19, Paul says that we have been entrusted with a message. Entrusted with a message of reconciliation. What is that message? It's the gospel. It's what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. If you look back in verse 15, Paul has already recounted the event of the crucifixion, that Jesus died and rose again. But now in verse 21, he unpacks the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection, the meaning of the cross. This is the theological substance of the gospel. And it's important because there's a lot of people today, including maybe some of you, who know that Jesus died on the cross, but they don't understand why. And they don't understand what actually was happening as Jesus hung on the cross. I remember thinking this years ago when that movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. Because that movie tells the story of what happened to Jesus. But it utterly fails to explain what Jesus was accomplishing. It doesn't tell us why Jesus suffered on the cross. And this is what we must understand. If the gospel is going to shape our ministry, if it's going to shape our motives and and be the message we're proclaiming, we need to understand it. And Paul describes for us in verse 21 this glorious transaction that takes place at the cross. And it's a transaction that goes two directions. Let's just look at it together. He says, for our sake, there's the love of Christ for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus became a sinner. What it means is that Jesus took upon himself. He bore the shame and the guilt and the punishment that sin deserves. This is teaching we find all throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, the prophet writes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a vivid picture that the Israelites would have been very familiar with as they would have seen the high priest taking his hands and placing them on the sacrificial animal. Symbolizing that the sins of the people are now laid upon this creature who would then bear the punishment for their sins. This is what Jesus did as the Lamb of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, in order for us to be reconciled to God, Our sins have to be removed and judged. They have to be removed and judged. And that's exactly what was happening as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And I'm convinced that this is what Jesus was dreading even more than the nails, even more than the crown of thorns, even more than the spear that would pierce his side, even more than the the scourging that left him shredded and exposed to the elements, even more than the shame of being, being hung naked as a spectacle in front of all to see, Jesus knew that he was going to take the sin of the redeemed upon himself and be treated as if he were personally guilty for every sinful thought, 
every wicked motive, every selfish action, every act of violence, every sexual shame, everything, he knew he would bear it all. And that God's wrath against each and every one of those sins would be poured out fully and completely upon him. That's why Jesus was shaking and trembling as he prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. The cup of wrath that will be poured out as I bear the sin of the world. Jesus knew that that's why he was going to the cross. In order for us to be reconciled to God, our sin has to be removed from us so that God can have fellowship with us. And our sin has to be judged so that his righteous wrath can be fully discharged and he is free then to rightly and justly receive us and love us, to show grace and love. See, there can be no compromise to God's holiness and his justice, so atonement has to happen. Payment has to be made. Propitiation needs to happen. We talked about that a few weeks ago. A satisfying sacrifice so that God's righteous wrath is spent. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. But there's a second part of this transaction. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in order to be reconciled to God, we not only need our sins removed and punished, but we also have to meet God's standard of righteousness. And it's through Christ that both of these demands are met. Our sins were laid upon him, and his righteousness is granted to us. You see, there's a trade. In God's grace, Jesus says, let me take your sins upon me, and let me give you my perfect righteousness so that you can be completely acceptable to God. It is in our union with Christ that we are counted righteous. He says this. He says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we are joined with Christ through faith, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His merit, the approval that he earned in his perfect life, is given to us. So the verdict that was spoken over Jesus as God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that verdict gets shared with us. So that God can look at you and say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. How can God say that of us? Because our sins have been removed and nailed to the tree and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. That's the theological concept of, of our sin being given to him and his righteousness being granted to us. It's because of this that we are justified. We are counted righteous in Christ. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, considered righteous before God, because we're trusting in Jesus, he says, because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be reconciled to a holy God? Through faith in Christ. It's in him that we are justified. This is imputation. This is atonement. This is justification. And it's in this way that God can judge sin and forgive sinners. It's through the representative and substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Jesus was cut off so that we could be brought near. 
Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus dies so that we can live. Jesus is treated as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every believer who ever lived so that we could be treated as if we have always been just as righteous as Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon summarizes this. Famous preacher writes, You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. It is this truth, it is the meaning of the cross, the substance of the gospel, that is the message we have been entrusted with. This is the message by which people can be reconciled to God. But friends, this message is too often forgotten. Think about the magnitude of what Christ did, and then think about the fact that today it's often forgotten. It is often neglected. The beautiful truth of the gospel is sidelined in favor of the latest, shiny, fashionable topic in today's church. The glory of the gospel is set aside for fads or for politics, or for fundraising, or for cultural commentary, or for therapeutic talks that are intended to simply help you feel better about yourself. But may it never be in this church. Friends, if you're a member of this church, I'm speaking to you today. This message and the substance of this message of the gospel has to be spoken loudly and clearly in this church. We must never neglect it. We must preach Christ and Christ crucified, we resolve to boast only and always in the cross. The gospel must never be neglected, but secondly, the gospel must never be compromised. It's heartbreaking to me, but it's a fact that there are those today, even in our city, who would slander this precious truth that he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There are some who would call this repulsive, There are some who would reject the idea of an atoning sacrifice as if it were cruel, as if it were somehow some sort of cosmic child abuse, something that is more pagan than Christian, that the deity requires death in order to satisfy his wrath. There are some who want to repaint the cross as merely something that is inspiring but not ultimately effective. There's even popular and influential theologians out there today who have recast the crucifixion of Jesus as an injustice to be corrected rather than as an instrument of our salvation. They see Jesus as an example, as a martyr who identifies with human suffering, but not as the divine lamb of God who pays the ransom for sinners. Not as the one who has been sent by God to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why the instruction of Paul to Timothy is so important. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 1.13. Paul writes, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Paul's not wasting words. We have to guard the gospel Because it's always going to be under attack. In Jude, verse 3, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was eager, very eager, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Those are instructions that we must apply. If we are going to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus, then the gospel must be guarded, defended, remembered, emphasized, explained, embraced fully and entirely. My friends, if we neglect this essential substance of the gospel, or if we compromise and allow the good news to become weakened and diluted and distorted, there will be no spiritual power in the church. There will be no lasting fruit from this ministry, and there will be no glory for God, and there will be no disciples that are made. Some people think that churches die because everyone gets older and they don't have enough young people, but churches die when they forget the gospel. Even if there's a bunch of people there, it's dead. It's dead. And if you really want to reach young people, tell them about the God who sent his son to reconcile them through his substitutionary death on the cross. That message can change a life, can change a culture, can change the world. Let's not trade it out for something that's ineffective and weak. The message of the gospel, the substance of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection, this is the message at the heart of our ministry. If we're going to be faithful to our mission as a church, if we really want to see God glorified and see sinners saved and see believers strengthened in their faith, we want to make disciples, then the gospel must be central in the ministry of this church. It needs to form and provide the motive for why we do what we do. The love of Christ must compel us. It needs to shape the way that we view the world. It needs to be the dominant lens that we look through. And it needs to drive our mission, that we understand ourselves to be ambassadors for Christ. Being an ambassador is not something that's reserved for pastors or missionaries. It's something that applies to Christians. So the question is, are you a good one, a faithful ambassador, or are you not fulfilling your calling in declaring and defending the truth of the gospel? You know, Paul believed that the gospel was the power of God to salvation. And so that's why he resolved to make it the focus of his ministry. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And we need to do the same. The gospel must shape our motive, change our mindset, drive our ministry, and be at the very center of the message that we proclaim. So let's resolve together to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, to proclaim it with spirit-filled confidence, to passionately emphasize this truth in our preaching and teaching and worship and counseling and relationships. Let's resolve to personally grow, all of us, in our fluency with the gospel so that God may be glorified as we follow Christ and call others to do the same. Heavenly Fathers, we open your word today. We're struck by the power and the clarity with which Paul preached and ministered. I'm personally amazed just to see how he suffered and what he sacrificed. And it's very clear why he did this. It was the love of Christ that gripped his heart. It was the truth of the gospel that had radically transformed his life and given him a new mission and a new purpose. It changed the way he saw the world. It engaged him in your mission of reconciling sinners. And it became the very center of the truth that he proclaimed. Lord, we want to do the same thing. 
We confess today, Lord, that there's challenges to that. We're forgetful. Sometimes we allow the noise all around us to creep in, to drown out the clarity of what you've done for us. We can easily get sidetracked by the many different competing visions and missions that are all around us. Lord, we know that this truth of the gospel is under attack. There are those who reject the meaning of the cross. Some of them outside the church, some of them inside the church. Lord, we need to be faithful and we need your help. Give us discernment and wisdom to discern error. Pray that you'd give us a clear understanding of your word so that it would become the filter by which we weed out the lies and preserve the truth. Give us courage and conviction, Lord, to stand, to draw lines in the sand that need to be drawn and to stand for truth when necessary. And it is often necessary today. Pray, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would not be embarrassed by a bloody cross and an empty tomb, that we would not be embarrassed to profess that our salvation depends on Christ and him alone. Lord, give us joy. Give us a fierce dedication to your mission. Empower us by your spirit. And Lord, be glorified in this church as we seek to carry out the mission you've given us. Amen.